chapter 21, beginning at verse 1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Hephzibah. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. He erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I will put my name. For he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He made his son pass through the fire, practice witchcraft, and use divination, and dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Then he set a carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house of which the Lord had said to David and to his son Solomon, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not make the feet of Israel wander any more from the land which I gave to their fathers, if only they will observe to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen. And Manasseh seduced them to do evil more than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. Now the Lord spoke through his servants the prophet, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, having done wickedly more than all the Amorites did who were before him, and has also made Judah sin with his idols, therefore thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such calamity on Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. I will abandon the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies, and they will become as plunder and spoil to all their enemies. Because they have done evil in my sight and have been provoking me to anger since the day their fathers came from Egypt even to this day. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another besides his sin which he made Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did and his sin which he committed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Manasseh slept with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his own house, in the garden of Uzzah, the, and Ammon, his son, became king in his place. Amen. The book of Proverbs says that when the wicked rise, people hide themselves, 
but when they perish, the righteous increase. We are dealing with one of the most wicked of all kings in the history of Judah. Hezekiah, you'll remember, was the previous king we were studying, and how Hezekiah did indeed receive his extra 15 years of life when he prayed to the Lord. Remember, the Lord said to Hezekiah, get your house in order because I'm, I'm bringing you to an end. And Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and he began to pray and he began to say, remember me, Lord, I you know, was faithful. And God sent Isaiah the prophet back to Hezekiah and told Hezekiah, okay, I've heard your prayer and I've answered your prayer. And this ought to encourage us. Don't ever give up hope if you think all, all is lost. You know, you never know. God might, you know, heal you or do something to deliver you from that situation. And so God said, okay, Hezekiah, I, I, I have heard your prayer and I'm gonna answer your prayer affirmatively. I'm going to heal you and give you an extra 15 years. Well, those years have come to an end. And the next thing we read at the end of the last chapter is that 12-year-old Manasseh became king. He has a tremendously long reign. His mother's name is mentioned. And we are told that Manasseh did evil like the Canaanite nations that were dispossessed. Now I want you to understand something about that. Remember that, <coughs> that God had dispossessed the seven Canaanite nations that previously were in the land of Palestine by the hand of Israel, and it was a judgment against those nations. Remember that God had said he was not going to allow his people to take the land until the full measure of those nations, those seven nations, and their sin had come up to him in their fullness. And then God allowed Israel to execute a holy judgment, a holy war on these nations and to destroy them completely. But what we see here in this chapter, though, now is this, that now we're being told that the reign of Manasseh and all that Manasseh has done is even worse than what those nations had done that, in, that caused God to judge them and destroy them. And then there's a catalog in verse 3 and following of Manasseh's particular sins. What did Manasseh do? The first thing he did is he rebuilt the high places. You'll remember, boys and girls, young people, you'll remember the high places were those places, as it, the name suggests, they were up on hills, on mountains, and they were places of sacrifice and worship but that God had not commanded ever to be done. Remember that we are not only to worship the true and the living God alone and serve no other gods, but we also are to worship the true and the living God in the way that he prescribes. We are not free to invent ways to worship. So we, the, they would set up these high places, but God had specifically said, I want you to worship me and offer those sacrifices where my name is at the temple. So Manasseh rebuilds the high places. We are told he brings altars for Baal. He, he erects altars for Baal. He brings the Asherah. Asherah are kind of like totem poles. They're almost like a fertility god that uh, is worshipped so that you might have abundant rain and abundant sunshine for crops. Um, and even these were brought into the house of the Lord. So, for example, it would be, not exactly, but 
if I can make an, uh, an analogy, it would be like if I came and I set up a big statue of Buddha and put it here on the Lord's table. Um, it, it, it was bringing these foreign objects of worship, foreign gods, and placing them right in the place where God should be worshipped in spirit and in truth. We are told that Manasseh then worshipped the host of heaven. Now what is that? He began to worship the uh, stars, the moon, the sun. They, they lifted up their hearts to the constellations and began to worship them and serve them. We are told that the altars for the hosts of heaven were put in two courts in the temple. So two courts had special places of sacrifice and worship uh, for the things that God had created. If you go back to Genesis 1, remember that it was God who created the sun and the moon. And the sun to govern the day and the moon to, to govern the night. The sun was not to be worshipped. The moon was not to be worshipped. Now, people who didn't know the living God didn't know that. And so they, they, well, and they knew it you know, by way of general revelation. But in rebellion against God, they would serve the sun. So some religions served the sun, some the moon. Uh, you know, even Job said, you know, you know, God, if I have secretly, you know, uh, been drawn away, if I've kissed the moon, you know, meaning if I've, you know, worshipped me, I could understand this judgment. When Job was trying to understand his suffering, he, he said, Lord, you know, I haven't been worshipping the constellations, uh, and, and yet I'm suffering all these things. Well, Manasseh just went right through that and, and began to set up altars in the house of the Lord where they worshipped at. They also set up Asherah poles in the house of the Lord. So you might, you know, if, if I were to set up a totem pole or some other kind of uh, image here in, in this sanctuary, it'd be akin to that. And then we're told that the people followed Manasseh into these sins. Now, what do we say to all these things? Well, first of all, one thing I want us to take away, and I forgot to give you my three points. Point number one is verses one through nine. We're going to look at the apostasy, the apostasy in verses one through nine. Secondly, in verses 10 uh, and following, we're going to look at the judgment that is foretold. And then finally, I want us to see the hope that is in the midst of all this judgment, the hope that is in the midst of the judgment. So the apostasy, the judgment, and then the hope. Now, the apostasy, let's talk about apostasy here because this is what is going on in Judah. Apostasy is a falling away from the true and the living God. So a, a true uh, apostasy, one must have at least some semblance of knowledge and understanding of God. That is, a, a pagan, a true pagan cannot really apostatize because they've never come to any semblance of faith in the true and the living God to begin with. So an apostasy is always beginning with some semblance of the truth and understanding it, but then turning away from uh, that truth. Now, there are, are degrees uh, of this, but it is a real danger and it is a reality even today. So apostasy is turning away from the true and the living God for other gods, or sometimes for no god at all. So somebody who falls into atheism, 
or agnosticism, is falling into apostasy. Now, apostasy can um, begin very subtly uh, in the secret place of the heart. It can begin subtly with backsliding, uh, beginning to permit things that are forbidden by the word of God, small things, but then it grows. Sometimes it can come with great suddenness. Um, now, even that suddenness, though, I think often is laid by small backslidings that set you up, but some people fall into great sin, great immorality, and they never seem to recover from it. Now, by the grace of God, sometimes people can recover from falling into deep sin. We see this with, with David. David falls into the great sin with Bathsheba, and yet, by God's mercy, David is able to recover. And, and one of the reasons we do church discipline is, is for the glory of God, but also for the recovery. People need to understand one of the reasons we do church discipline is in the hopes that people will recover, uh, that under that discipline they will kind of come to their senses like the prodigal um, who realized it was better at his father's house than to be out here serving the pigs, longing to eat what the pigs were eating. Um, churches that don't exercise any discipline at all, even at a pastoral level, are not helping the people of God. They're not really loving the people of God. Um, it, I think it's more a fear of man, and, and that is a snare for the church, and it leads ultimately to further problems. You might think you're avoiding problems by not confronting sin in the church, but what you're really doing is you're just kicking the can down the road for bigger problems later on. When you don't deal with it in, as it's a, in a, a small matter, what happens is that Paul says sin is like leaven, and it tends to spread. And then you've got, you got bigger problems, and eventually you've got denominational problems. Um, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson was one of my professors in seminary, and I remember him warning us that we cannot say, the reason we need to take this seriously is because we can't say, I'm only backsliding. Um, many times when you witness to somebody and you ask them, do you know Jesus Christ? And in the good Southern answer, they'll say, well, yeah, I know the Lord, but I'm backslidden right now. Yeah, how many times have you heard somebody tell you that? You know, uh, do you know the Lord? Have, have you become a Christian? Well, yeah, you know, I, I did. I, I walked the aisle, but I'm, I'm backslidden right now. Well, you can't say I'm just backslidden because you don't know. You see, the, it may be that what you're really in is early stages of apostasy. All apostasy begins with some backsliding. So the reason we, we have to warn backsliders is because, yes, you might just be backsliding, and you might, by God's grace, recover. But you don't know that. See, nobody ever says, well, yeah, I'm a, I, I'm, I'm a Christian, but I'm, I'm heading towards apostasy. I, I, I'm a believer, I, I, I'm a member of a church, but uh, in 10 years, I, I won't be. I, I, I'll, I'll be gone and never darken the door the rest of my life. Nobody ever tells you that, do they? No, it's just, I'm, I'm just backslidden. But we, so we need to take this seriously here. Um, Hebrews chapter 6, look at Hebrews chapter 6 with me. 
in verses 1 through 9, the author of Hebrews warns us pastorally. Now, I know, you, you know you're saying, maybe some of you in your heart, but pastor, what about perseverance of the saints? I thought we were five-point Calvinists. <laughs> yeah, we are. Um, and, and, but it, believers who are true believers will persevere. But that's the point. You've got to persevere to show that you're really regenerate, that you're really a true believer. If you don't persevere, then you were never really regenerated. And you really never did come to know Christ. You thought you came to know Christ, but you really never did know Jesus Christ. He never knew you. So look at what we, we have to take these pastoral warnings, and we don't want to minimize the warnings of Scripture, these pastoral warnings given to us in the New Testament by trying to outflank them theologically. Look at what the, what the text says. Now, for those of you visiting, do I believe that the truly saved can lose their salvation? No. If you are truly born again of the Spirit of God, he who began a work in you will complete it to the day of redemption. But as a, as a matter of human responsibility, though, you have to be the one to persevere. You have to be the one who shows himself to be continuing in the faith. There's a lot of easy believism in the South. And, and that needs to really be dealt with honestly uh, by the church. Look at what the author of Hebrews says. He says, therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity. So you're supposed to, you're supposed to progress, not regress. Press on to maturity, to grow, grow up. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Now, listen closely here. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift. Now, what is the heavenly gift? Well, I think the heavenly gift is the, the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Those who have been and those who have gone and attended worship services and they, they knew that God was in the, in the room. Now, sometimes they taste... Uh, unto, unto salvation. There are some who I think, like in Jesus' day, they see the powers of God at work in him, but still it may lead to conviction, but not to conversion. So there are some who seemingly taste of the powers of God, and, and we're dealing with things that are mysterious here, that are short of coming to truly being born again. They, they may feel the unction and the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Uh, their, their emotions may be moved. Their affections may be moved. They, they, even their, uh, their mind for a season is illuminated. But Satan comes and steals the, the word from their heart later in the day when they leave church. But here we're dealing with people who have tasted of the heavenly gift. They may have walked with the church even for a while, they have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. They have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Now, I will be honest with you. I don't know, pastorally speaking, 
who those are that have tasted of the powers of the age to come and cannot be renewed again, and those who are like Luke 15, the prodigal son, who can come back. But my, I think the warning here from Hebrews is this, is don't be either of them. Just the, simply because we can't discern who is apostate and who is severely backslidden, the author of Hebrews is warning us that we, we should do neither. I mean, really, you don't want to be Judas or Peter on the night in which Jesus was betrayed. You don't want to be the one who denies him, and you don't want to be the one who betrays him. Now, thankfully, by God's grace, Peter was restored and became useful in the church. But the point is, we need to watch our hearts. This is why the scripture many times in the New Testament says, examine yourself, examine yourself. Now, this is hard. We live in an age that does not like to sit and be quiet. We've got to look at our phone. We've got to check our email. We've got to do, you know, there's all these things. The art of meditation, of Christian meditation, has been lost, even on your pastor. There's so many things that seem to be pressing in on us. But the Bible says we should take account. We, we do need to do soul searching from time to time. We need to look and we, we need to say, am I running the race with endurance? Or am I flagging? Am I falling behind? Am I going backwards? Jeremiah says to the people of God, the problem with you people, he says to his own people, is you are going backwards instead of forwards. My people are going backwards. And that is what the author of Hebrews is warning us of, and I think that is what the book of Kings is historically and narratively warning us of. Well, I think one of the saddest verses out of this chapter is probably verse 9 because it's in that verse that you'll see that it, it, it wasn't just Manasseh who is apostatizing, but the whole of the nation. Now, that's not to say every individual, single, solitary person apostatized. We know there were people who were faithful. We know there were the Daniels of his day who were true believers who went into captivity and, and suffered um, for the apostasy of their countrymen. But nevertheless, notice here that it is said in verse 9, they, not just Manasseh, but they, the people of God, they did not listen. Judah did not listen, and Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. It, it, was, it, was, a, it was a nationwide apostasy. Apostasy, we have to realize, can happen to anyone. All of us, ministers, elders included, need to watch how we walk. We need to fight the little apostasies in our heart when they rise up, while they're still small. I laid hands on a man who I think you could judge as apostate today. He was a man in our presbytery, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to others. And now um, has renounced that. And that's a sobering thing to think I participated in his ordination service. And now he no longer 
claims any allegiance uh, to Christ and Christ's work and atonement. This happened to the Apostle Paul. Paul s spoke of a man named Demas. Demas, having loved this present world. You know, if you look at, some of the en at the end of some of the epistles in the New Testament, it says, and Demas, along with me, greets you. You know, Demas is, is signing off on these epistles with Paul. And yet, what happens later? At the end of Paul's ministry, Demas is gone. It happened to Jesus that of the twelve, one of them had a demon. I've seen it in my own ministry. People that I thought genuinely came to Jesus Christ. People who I thought came out of the world to Christ in a new life, a new creature, and now, you know, they're back in the world. I think that's one of the sad parts of being in the ministry so long. 29 years, by God's grace, I hope many, many more. But it, it is one of the difficult things to see that people that you thought you had brought to Christ, people that you thought came to Christ through your ministry, have now gone back. I've been part of prayer groups. I've prayed regularly with men in prayer groups. I can remember one particular prayer group where there were three of us, and now only one of the three of us is in church still. And I hope by God's grace I'll stay in the church. It is, it is a, a, one of the sad realities that we need to deal with that the people of God followed Manasseh willingly into this sin. There seems to be no apparent rebellion against Manasseh, no great resistance. We're not told of any resistance to Manasseh. They just fell away. And our own history teaches us this too, doesn't it? Here we are, this tiny little Presbyterian denomination of 30,000 people. And we used to be a part of the mainline church. And we used to be part of millions of Presbyterians in this country. But what happened? We didn't leave our denomination. Our denomination left us. They began to say it was okay to ordain men who didn't believe in the virgin birth. It was okay to ordain men who didn't believe in the miracles of Jesus, who, who didn't uh, believe in, in the atonement of Christ, who didn't believe in the deity of Christ. And how long can you be a part of that denomination and still be faithful to Jesus Christ? There came a point where our people had to say, enough. We must come out from among you. If you're going to deny Christ, then we cannot walk together. And so our fathers, our forefathers in the last century left. We started a new denomination, and we started meeting in buses and, and uh, hotels and um, where, at gymnasiums and wherever we could find space uh, because we were more concerned about the gospel and about being faithful to Christ than we were about how ornate and how beautiful the buildings were or what, what our neighbors would say. Whole churches can fall into apostasy whole denominations. Those of you who are my fellow elders, you need to realize you're elected not just to watch over this individual congregation. Your ministry doesn't stop just with this congregation. It involves the presbytery, the regional church. It involves 
the church at the general assembly level. That's why we have to be keeping up and aware with what's going on at a broader level. Uh, we have responsibilities that are, that are beyond even those here locally. Not only denominations can experience apostasy, Christian schools and universities experience apostasy. I was listening yesterday to George Marsden's book, a wonderful book uh, called Fundamentalism and the American Culture. It's just a history of conservative Christianity in America. And Marsden uh, notes professors who at one time were disciplined for their lack of orthodoxy surrounding things such as creation and Genesis. Uh, one, one professor was disciplined at Vanderbilt in the 19th century. I don't think they care anymore at Vanderbilt uh, if you deny you know, the, the, the creation account in, in Genesis. So we've seen universities. Most of our universities have Christian origins. The University of Georgia was founded by Presbyterians. Harvard, Yale, Princeton, all founded by Calvinists. And, and yet, uh, today, they by and large reject the gospel. There are here and there, maybe you can find a Christian professor and here and there some Christian students but by and large, as an institution, they no longer hold to the faith. Because of this apostasy, there, was, there is a judgment. That's the next section here, verses 10 through 18. There's a judgment that follows. Again, verse 10, Now the Lord spoke through his servants, the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, having done wickedly more than all the Amorites, did who were before him he and has he excuse me and has also made Judah sin with his idols therefore thus says the Lord the God of Israel I am bringing such calamity on Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it both his ears will tingle God is bringing such a judgment on the capital city of Judah Jerusalem where the temple is where his name is and remember the temple is a picture it's a type of Christ God is even going to allow this picture of Christ to be destroyed under this judgment because their sins are worse now than the Amorites, those people who lived in the land prior to Israel taking the land. God is now going to remove his people out of the land. He's going to excommunicate them out of the land, send them into what we call the Babylonian captivity. Now, this should be a warning to us that even as Israel sunk beneath the sins of the Amorites, that is, they actually committed sins worse than the Amorites, let me remind you in Jude, verse 7, there's only one chapter, chapter 1, verse 7, that we are told by Jude that Sodom and Gomorrah is an example for us today. Let me read you the verse. It says, Sodom was, quote, exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. What's my point? If Israel sunk beneath the sins of the Amorites and was judged accordingly, it is possible that seeing that God has given us Sodom and Gomorrah as an example for us, it is possible, I think the warning is, that we too can sink to that level or beneath it. 
Now, this judgment is so severe that the ears are, are going to tingle. That is, that there is going to be, this judgment will create such a sensation of shock to people who hear this news, it, it will seem to have physical repercussions to them. Uh, many of you, you know, know what it was like, you know, on 9-11. You, you remember where you were when you, when you first saw what happened. Uh, some of you may remember, you know, John, John F. Kennedy's assassination and, and things like that. This, this is even more than that. Um, the judgment, which already has come against the ten northern tribes, now is going to be brought against Judah and Benjamin. Notice in verse 14 that Judah was considered the remnant of the people of God in that day. But now they have become like the people up north. God was long-suffering with Israel. He dealt with their idolatry going back even to the time of the wilderness, we're told in verse 15. You know, Stephen tells us in his sermon in Acts chapter 7, he says, you also took along the tabernacle of Moloch, and the star of your god, Ramtha. That is, even as they came out and experienced the miracles of God parting the Red Sea and bringing his people, they were carrying their idolatry with them. And so God has been patient with his people. God has been long-suffering. God has been kind. God has blessed them in many ways, but they will not forsake the idolatry. And now God is left with no other alternative but to bring this judgment upon them. God is not being cruel here. God is uh, not being malevolent. But his measure of mercy has been filled up. And there is nothing left for the people. Goodness and mercy will not bring them to repentance. So beware. Notice here that also, in not only is idolatry bringing judgment upon them, but murder. Remember that murder, the blood of every person, every time you read your newspaper, every time you, you read about it in the internet, or you watch it on the news that somebody's been murdered, remember that blood cries up to heaven, we're told. When the first murder took place and Cain killed Abel, God said that the blood of Abel cried up to God. And God heard the blood of Abel and, and why was this? Why did Cain kill Abel? Because Cain wouldn't repent of his idolatry. He wouldn't bring a proper sacrifice. And instead, he'd rather murder the one who was bringing the proper sacrifice than repent himself. We see that even the great David was guilty of murder when he killed Uriah. Uh, we see that the Jews sought to kill Paul when he began to preach Christ. Judas sought the judicial murder of Jesus. And so there, there have been many murders which have cried out for justice. God here is telling us in this text that he will not be mocked. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in loving kindness. But he's not going to be made a fool of by wicked men and penitent men who think they can continue on forever. And I think we are deceiving ourselves as a culture if we think that we can usurp the commands of God, the place of God, without any consequences, forever. One day the party's going to end, and it will end badly. That's why it's important for us who are Christians, <coughs> as I prayed, to lead the way in repentance. Now, i got to leave us with some hope here. 
And where is the hope to be found? <clears throat> I want to suggest to you it's not in this chapter. <laughs> but if you look another couple books over, you'll find it in another history. And that is in 2 Chronicles chapter 33. And if you look at verses 10 to 17, 2 Chronicles chapter 33, you'll see that the chronicler also tells us about Manasseh. But here he gives us some encouragement and hope. And I hope it will bring encouragement to you, especially those of us who have loved ones that have seemingly turned away from the Lord. Look at 2 Chronicles chapter 33, verse 10. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them, and they captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. When he was in distress, this is King Manasseh now, who did all that evil, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. When he prayed to him, he was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem and uh, to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. We see here that even Manasseh, by the grace of God, can be brought to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, is Judah going to suffer for the sins of Manasseh despite Manasseh's repentance? Yes. There are consequences for all the evil that Manasseh had done. But I do want to show you here, there was grace sufficient in Jesus Christ to save Manasseh. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is being offered to every one of you here today through this preaching. God himself, through the preaching of his word, is telling every one of you, if I can save Manasseh, I can save you. If I can bring Manasseh to repentance, I can bring you to repentance. If I can deliver Manasseh from his sins, I can deliver you from your sins. You need not stay in those sins. You are not, though you may seem addicted to your sins, and in some sense you are. But nevertheless, God can break the dominion of that addiction to your sin and can cause you to have a heart of flesh where you have a heart of stone. If you are not interested in Jesus Christ or in religion or in the things of God, God may yet still want to bring you into his family. And he, by grace and by his power, will. Now, that doesn't mean you're free to resist the Holy Spirit. You have a responsibility to repent. God commands all men everywhere to repent. Now, here again, this is a great mystery about the sovereignty of God and the human responsibility of man. We are not supposed to solve that mystery. We are supposed to take both as true. And we are supposed to, as free moral agents, do what we are commanded to do. And so if the Bible says repent, you need to repent. And if the Bible says believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And not worry about, well, am I of the elect? And if I'm not of the elect, well, then I can't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, you do what you are required to do. You put yourself, like Zacchaeus, climb that tree and put yourself in a position where you will see Jesus Christ. Open that Bible of yours, get it off the shelf, dust it off, and read. 
and pray for the Holy Spirit to open your eyes, to unplug your ears, to soften your heart. The, the scripture is what we call in the Reformed tradition perspicuitous. It is, it is clear. Um, there is a perspicuity to the scriptures. It is sufficiently clear. You don't have to have a PhD to understand the basic things that are taught in the Bible. You can be a very simple Christian with a very simple elementary school education. If you are able to read, you can open that Bible and you will get enough out of that Bible to be saved. That the Gospel of John is plain with the help of the Holy Spirit. So let us take a warning from this very sober history. The danger of apostasy is real. We must be on guard against it, first within ourselves, but then also with those around us. Let me leave you two verses in conclusion. It's interesting that both in the epistle of 1 John and also in James's epistle, they both give us exhortations that deal with this subject that we're talking about today. In 1 John, the last verse of 1 John says this, Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Point number one, conclusion number one. Covenant Presbyterian Church, guard yourselves from idols. Watch out for idols in your own life. Put them to death when they rise up. All of us have to struggle with idolatry. All of us have little idols that are claiming the throne of Jesus Christ and trying to get Christ off that throne. You need to take that idol. You need to do what Gideon did. Chop it down, burn it up, get rid of it. You need to do what Josiah did. Chop, that, chop it down, take it down to the river Kydron, burn it up, scatter the ashes in the river Kydron. Little children, guard yourself for miles. Number two, the second admonition is not just watch for yourself, but notice what James tells, tells us in chapter 5, verse 20. The very last verse of James says, Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That is, we have a responsibility not just for ourselves, but for others as well that we, we warn those who look from our perspective like they're heading for danger and that we warn them to turn from that, saving not only them but ourselves as well. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this sober history in your word. Lord, we know that like Manasseh and the people of Israel, we too come from Adam and Eve. We have the same tendencies, the same temptations. And Lord, we pray that you would keep and preserve us by your spirit, that we would show ourselves to be true believers in Jesus Christ. We do also pray, Lord, for many of us who have loved ones that have fallen away from a visible profession of faith in Jesus Christ and ask God that the Holy Spirit would do the work in them that you did in Manasseh. We pray this asking Lord, for the forgiveness of all our sins, in Jesus' name, amen.